This week on Policy, Guns and Money. Climate threats in maritime Southeast Asia and Australia. The challenge will be to convince the bureaucracies that it's as profound as President Biden suggests it is. Opportunities for Australia to support health systems in the Pacific. Focus on the areas where we can really add value and help our, our neighbours. And the Australian government's guided weapons announcement. The capacity to actually manufacture a range of different missiles in country, I, I think is now going to be a critical part of um, Australian self-reliance. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, ASPE has launched a new Climate and Security Policy Centre, which will be headed up by Dr Robert Glasser. Anastasia Kapetis is joined by Robert to discuss the centre's objectives, as well as a new ASPE report which warns of climate hazards in maritime Southeast Asia. Welcome everyone. Today we are going to talk about the, the launch of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre and to talk with us today about that is the head of that centre, Robert Glasser. Robert, welcome. Thank you, Anastasia. And we're also going to talk about Robert's new insight paper that he's just published with ASPE, which is um, the really about the rapidly emerging crisis um, in our region in terms of climate. So just to kick us off, Please tell us about the new centre. How is your centre going to be different from some of the other centres around? And what would you like to bring to, to the issue of climate and security? Ooh, I guess uh, the major difference between this centre and other centres is the topic itself, because there, as far as I'm aware, there is no comparable focus of any centre. I mean, there's certainly individual researchers focusing on climate and security, but in terms of a designing a center around this topic. I'm not aware of others. And it's a really critical issue and critically important for people to realize that what climate is bringing is a global systemic change. You know, some people refer to climate change as a threat multiplier, but that doesn't nearly capture what's happening now. It's warmer now than it has ever been in all of human civilization. So we have no precedent for the changes we're now beginning to see, you know, black summer in Australia and the 2010-11 food security crisis uh, and a whole range of these very large scale unprecedented extreme events that are happening now and the pace of those changes are accelerating and this means that the impacts on security uh, will be increasing as well. So I think it's really interesting that the new Biden administration recently put out an executive order that puts climate change right at the centre of national security. So again, the, the idea that getting away from this idea as cl climate as a threat multiplier, but climate as the primary threat generator. And that's very interesting and, again, unprecedented development, certainly in the Five Eyes. Yeah, I think there, the US previously with national security uh, directives has commented on climate and security and noted that it's an important emerging source of instability. But yeah, I agree. This is a profound change. The challenge will be to convince the bureaucracies that it's as profound as President Biden suggests it is. And I think that will take time. If they're already if they're already convinced, and I'm sure there are some in defense, for example, that are already convinced this is a fundamental threat, then this will empower them to act. But for others, I think it will probably take more than a presidential directive for that mindset to change. So is this got to do with the complexity of the climate threat, do you think? 
Well, that point I made earlier about never before in human history have we experienced this. So we have no context from which to evaluate what these impacts are going to be. And it's also incredibly complex because usually when we think of climate change, we think of a, a disaster like a strong storm or a flooding event. And yes, that's something that will happen more often and be more severe with climate change, but it will be happening simultaneously with so many other elements of this systemic change. The temperature is rising slowly, sea level is rising slowly. Um, we have populations being displaced, we'll have crop pests uh, destroying crops, we'll have uh, inundation of salt water. And so the changes are multifaceted and it's extremely complex to just to analyze those. So what ends up happening is people talk about what impact climate change will have on sea level rise, but not how that will impact agriculture and combined with other hazards that are emerging simultaneously. So just to dig into that point a little bit deeper, using your recent insight paper where you talk about maritime Southeast Asia as being right in the, in the centre, ground zero in terms of climate change impact, what might some of these cascading effects look like there? Yeah, I think one of the reasons I wrote that paper was because, well, there were two reasons. One was that when we talk about climate change here in Australia, we talk about the impacts in Australia and then we talk about the things, the climate impacts happen, happening elsewhere in the world as if there are no implications for Australia. Well, that's clearly not the case. And this is the second reason I wrote the paper, because if we look to our immediate north on our northern doorstep, maritime Southeast Asia, it's, it's accurate to describe it as a global climate hotspot. And I think this has been really remarkably overlooked in our analyses. Mm -hmm. If you look at its exposure to hazards, of course, it's already exposed to hazards even without a warming climate, but climate change hazards are impacting that region far more than in, in most other places. For example, sea levels rising four times faster in maritime Southeast Asia. You've got the level of exposure of populations, hundreds of millions of people in the region, mm. uh, living in low-lying coastal areas that are exposed not just to sea level rise, but the cyclone risk that is intensifying with climate change. The storms are getting stronger. And this region is one of the most exposed, particularly the Philippines, to climate risk. You have extreme flooding events. If you look at the El Niño-La Niña natural phenomena that climate scientists now are fairly certain the El Niños will double in frequency. Uh, in a matter of a few decades, and La Niña's will become more intense. It means that the region, this region, just because of its location between the Indian and the Pacific, is particularly affected by these El Niño-La Niña events. And it means the region will be swinging from extreme drought to extreme floods much more frequently, and the time in between to recover will diminish. So all of those things happening simultaneously will have numerous knock-on imp impacts. And it's not just extreme events, is it? Um, when you look at reports by, for example, Swiss Re, the big reinsurance firms of the world, basically what the other thing that they're saying is that these lower-impact climate-related events uh, will also have devastating cumulative impacts. Yeah, it's, it's a, as you say, it's a sort of an underappreciated uh, element of the changes that are happening. So we have, we have slow-onset events that are are problems with a warming climate. We have just 
temperature increasing, and that has an impact on agriculture and places that are suitable for agriculture and heat stress on people working in these in many parts of the world. We have sea level that's rising slowly, which will have impacts on coastal erosion. We have those things happening at the same time. We have extreme events happening so that with higher sea level rise, when those stronger cyclones come, then there will be more floods and stronger storm surge, which will be more destructive. But then, as you said, currently there are these hazards that are are very are below the radar. They don't get publicity. They don't make the news, and they're happening. There, there might be an extreme flooding event, but in a localized area. But over time, if you look throughout the year, and as Swiss Re just recently pointed out in a major report they produced, these events are also going up, and, and strikingly so. So you have this combination of slow onset high-profile big shocks and these lower-level shocks that are hugely damaging. So it all underscores the need to better understand climate change quickly. We don't have a lot of time to do it and to keep temperature rises under two degrees. Yeah, it's absolutely <clears throat> critical. Uh, and, of course, Australia, a country that is highly exposed to climate hazards, as we saw last year with, with Black Summer, and as a country that has many near-neighbour, less developed, countries that are extremely exposed and vulnerable to climate change and their problems coping with climate change will very quickly become our problems. So Australia has a particular interest in promoting ambitious reductions in greenhouse gases and and of course to do that Australia itself has to be reducing to do that effectively incredibly Australia itself has to be more ambitious in reducing greenhouse gases. Do you think there's been a change recently amongst Southeast Asian countries in taking climate change more seriously? Well, of course, these countries have lived with disasters a long time, but they are absolutely now seeing unprecedented events, the scale of the cyclones, the intensity record, historically record events, different cyclone tracks. And yes, they're increasingly doing this uh, in the Philippines, the uh, Filipino president is talking about establishing now a cabinet-level department of disaster risk reduction linked to the climate issue and disasters more generally. So they're elevating uh, this as a major priority for the government, just as Australia mm. now in establishing a department, a Resilience Relief and Recovery Agency, reporting to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is doing and I do notice also that ASEAN has um, announced that it wants to make climate central to its agenda this year too, which is a really big change for the organisation. So it does seem that, that things are changing in Southeast Asia, but what does Southeast Asia really need uh, to make a difference to its both its climate impact and its ability to, to restrain its own emissions? Well, I think first of all, it needs to appreciate how the risk is changing and that is gradually dawning on them as it is on dawning on us here in Australia. And of course, that will happen as the scale of the hazards increase and as we start seeing these cascading impacts on society accelerating, including food insecurity, conflict. The challenge is how do we make, how do we make that penny drop a little earlier so that we can minimize the impacts? And we do have the ability, both in Australia and our, and our regional neighbors, to reduce the risks and of these hazards cascading, causing huge impacts on people, on conflict, food insecurity, those sorts of things. But the starting point is appreciating 
that there is fire for change, those literal, literally and <laughs> figuratively yeah. to motivate that action. And just also um, digging a bit deeper into this notion of climate change events cascading into deep political instability and change, do you see um, Southeast Asia as vulnerable there too? I think uh, I think Southeast Asia is vulnerable to that, as unlikely as that feels right now. But I think, as we were saying at the beginning of this discussion, we're moving into an era that is unprecedented in our human experience. And so we absolutely can't rule out really fundamental threats to stability in our region. And in fact, there are a number of underlying factors, the poverty, degree of poverty, some governance, weak governance in some countries, um, histories of separatist movements and outbreaks of conflict that suggest that with extreme pressures of the sort we're seeing with a warming climate, those things could reemerge and could expand uh, to be quite serious. So I think that's um, one of the the real benefits of having you know, a centre like this in Australia is number one regional proximity, but also to really begin to understand some of these political and social and economic upheavals, because I suppose it's it's just so important to one just try and understand what they might be so that we can try and hit them off at the path. And I guess the danger is if if we don't begin to understand them, that void is filled by disinformation, fantasy, conspiracism around climate change. So uh, what would be your comment on, on, on trying to make sure that the information going and circulating around the region on climate is equally important? Well, I think we have the high ground on this point, not just the moral high ground, but and figuratively, but with the increasing frequency of disasters, it's harder to make the case that this is just business, that this is a normal situation we're in, and it will become increasingly difficult. That in itself, though, isn't enough to stop disinformation, of course. So the center has a really important role to play, I think, here in Australia and also within our region in contributing evidence-based, credible research and policy recommendations to address climate change and to try and counteract the, the huge amounts of disinformation from special interest groups and others that is out there and that will probably continue to be out there. Thank you very much, Robert, for explaining what the new centre is and what it hopes to do. Thanks very much. ASPI has released a report on the next step in the Pacific Step Up, which looks at the potential for the ADF to form military partnerships in the Pacific health sector. Michael Shoebridge speaks to report author, Dr. David Brewster senior research fellow at the ANU National Security College. They discuss what this health partnership might look like and how it could benefit both the ADF and the region. Well, David, thanks very much for making some time to talk about your latest report for ASPE. Thank you, Michael. Um, I think it, I'd start with the title. Uh, it's about the next step in the step up. Uh, and it's all about a path for the Australian Defence Force to to play a new role in the Pacific for the long-term benefit of Pacific nations and their populations, but in a way that builds Australia's medical uh, health capacity inside our defence yeah. force as well. Uh, I thought I might just make a remark about the title. Next, next step in the step up seems to me really an important point to make because Australia's Pacific step up was announced by the Prime Minister back in November 2018 uh, around the APEC meeting in Port Moresby. Big package of things that Australia uh, is doing in our region. 
But since then, it hasn't really had what it needs, which is a rolling campaign of new initiatives. And what your report does is describe very articulately a really important new initiative. That's right. And I think the step up needs to be a comprehensive whole of government approach and also one that evolves over time to meet the uh, evolving needs uh, of our region. And we have to be smart in the way we do it. We not just sort of throw money uh, around, but actually focus on the areas where we can really add value and help our, our neighbours. And I think to some extent, the ADF's role, its capabilities has been really underplayed in the step up um, so far. They have extraordinary capabilities in a whole range of areas, in logistics and engineering and the expertise of the people. And this report focuses on the particular expertise of our ADF doctors and, and clinicians and how we can use them in a very clever way to build the capabilities, uh, help build the capabilities of our Pacific neighbours while also adding to the ADF's capabilities. Yeah, so I mean, a, a lot of people would be following the Australian government's COVID assist work in the Pacific and in PNG, you know, 8,000 vaccines delivered to PNG frontline health workers, pictures of uh, Australian Defence Force planes flying things in, including refurbished ambulances. But you're saying that beyond logistics and distribution, this is actually core medical specialist help. And you're not recommending the kind of hospital ship, you know, the Peace Arc example that we've seen because it's got yeah. some strange consequences. And why why aren't you recommending that kind of approach? Well, we have to be careful in the way we do things because although it's, I suppose, it's an obvious instinct, if we have medical professionals, we can send uh, them to other countries to assist them, whether in times of crisis or just uh, generally assist them in developing their health capabilities. We have to be very careful in the way we do it. And this, this report talks a lot about how militaries can sometimes do things in the wrong ways, um, and we can learn from that. And a great example is the uh, Chinese hospital ship, uh, uh, the so-called Peace Arc, which turns up at Pacific Islands, stays for a few days, essentially hands out uh, some pills, issues a press release, and then sails off into the sunset. And while that may be good PR uh, in some respects, it also actually doesn't help uh, the patients uh, very often or particularly the health systems. The, the patients will not get the ongoing treatment that they often need, and it certainly doesn't involve training and adding to capabilities of the local health system. So what we need to do is to look at that and learn from that and ask ourselves how can we produce long-term enduring partnerships with our Pacific neighbours. Mm, which is absolutely consistent with the direction of the Pacific Step Up. So what you are proposing is that Australian Defence Force doctors and other medical specialists would do short rotations, secondments uh, into Pacific Island countries to work alongside Discipline Force um, health practitioners and get 
direct experience in the kind of medical support that they would have to do for the Australian Defence Force in other situations. Yes, that's correct. So it would involve a ongoing rotation of clinicians, not just doctors, but other other uh, health specialists through local hospitals in, a, in the context of a long-term partnership with the local hospitals. And they would assist local practitioners who always need assistance and um, pass on their own experience. But just as importantly, and I can't emphasise this too much, it's a two-way partnership. Many of the uh, practitioners in our Pacific Islands treat traumas and treat uh, tropical diseases every day. And so they've become very much experts in that area. And for ADF health practitioners, they need that experience, they need that training that our Pacific partners can give. And so it's, uh, I see it very much as a two-way partnership in which uh, we are working, we could work together and, and build each other's capacity. Build each other's yeah. capacity. So it doesn't right. have that thing that you hear some Defence Force people are so anxious about that this kind of work will degrade ADF capability. It'll actually improve it. That's right. And, you know, that the ADF health practitioners are supposed to be able to deploy to the field um, and provide treatment of trauma or tropical diseases during a conflict, say. Mm. In but reasonably austere conditions. So but what they're not the... getting that training in Australia. No, well, this I was no? going to just ask you... Um, a lot of the ADF medical capability is uh, by drawing on civilians who serve in a reservist capacity for the military. Now, I think in your report you, you make the point that actually these reservists have joined because they want to do exactly the kind of work you're proposing they do. But at the moment, Defence has been a bit reluctant to do this. And why is that? Is it is it something about UN guidelines and current interpretations? Yes. So many of these reservists do join um, the ADF because they have a vision that they want to help our neighbourhood. They want to go and deploy to the field um, to help our friends in the Pacific and, and elsewhere. And when they get there, they realise that actually they can't be deployed and so it's a it's a real issue in terms of recruitment and, and training I, I believe the adf i think is probably a little bit uh, overly cautious in this area they there are some un guidelines about when militaries should or should not be used to provide aid um, during a crisis or a disaster and uh, that that has been interpreted in a way i think where to the effect that ADF uh, health professionals should not be deployed overseas in a more general way. To be fair, I understand some of the caution because they certainly they, they want to help our, our Pacific partners. They don't want to do harm. Mm. But we can do it in a clever way that helps them, that provides um, enduring benefits capacity. and yeah. capacity building well, for I mean, our Well, I mean, it's partners. interesting, isn't it? Because that same reluctance about using the ADF domestically here is, is, has been a, a bipartisan approach. Uh, but uh, when, when the capability is needed, as we're seeing around management of the pandemic, then the ADF is a very welcome part of our domestic capacity as well. I think the same applies in the South Pacific. Ab absolutely. And I think the recent bushfires and other, other disasters is really causing a rethink 
of the way that the ADF can, as a national capability, can be used to help communities domestically. And, uh, you know, you could argue that there, there, there can be a, a rethink in terms of our neighbourhood uh, as well. Mm. And really, the COVID pandemic is a bit of a wake-up call around this, isn't it? Because health capacity in small Pacific states and even in big ones like PNG is weaker than it needs to be in the face of what are likely to be mounting pressures on the public health systems. Uh, you talk a bit in your report about health impacts of climate change uh, and we can't rule out other pandemics and other challenges uh, that will require these small island states health systems to be much stronger than they are now. Um, and your point is the defence organisation can be a part of building that capacity. Absolutely. And the COVID crisis has been a big wake-up call. And in fact, the, the role of the ADF in helping in providing logistical support in delivering uh, vaccines to our neighbours was really a central part of the recent quad leaders meeting. But I think we can go uh, a lot further than that. And it's not just about the quad, the immediate quad crisis, but uh, as you mentioned, health security is going to be a major issue in coming years among the Pacific Islands. Much of that will be uh, uh, from impacts, various impacts of climate change, whether that be water issues, uh, waterborne diseases, population displacements. There's a whole lot of reasons to believe that in coming years there will be a real health crisis in the Pacific Islands and there'll be greater and greater calls for Australia to provide assistance. Mm, so this gets ahead of that. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah. we should be thinking about how to do that right now and what role the ADF can play in, in the most constructive way. Mm, well, thanks, Dave. We're pretty much out of time, but I think we should be doing more than think about it. I think the current COVID assistance package is a springboard for this new type of health partnership in the region, and the ADF has a real role to play. Absolutely. So very, thanks very much, Dave. Thank you very much. Last week, the Australian government announced a $1 billion federal plan to build a new guided weapons facility in Australia. Peter Jennings and Dr Marcus Hellyer consider the plan and how this will impact defence's sovereign capability. Hello Peter, how are you? Hi Marcus, I'm good. So today we're going to talk about missiles and last week's announcement by the government that it was, quote, accelerating the development of a sovereign guided weapons manufacturing enterprise. Is this a good idea? I think it is a good idea and um, you and I both, Marcus, have probably learnt over the years to apply a certain discount to the hype of uh, media releases that come from government. But but actually, I'm, I'm struck that this is a significant announcement in terms of Australian defence thinking. It's been a long time since Australia manufactured missiles. And the fact that we're now choosing to do this on an accelerated time frame really tells you quite a lot about the strategic environment that the country is looking at at the moment. I think it is a good idea, primarily because one of the lessons we've, uh, I think, um, had from the COVID experience is that if we allow ourselves to be so dependent on just-in-time supply from overseas sources, including for missiles, we could find ourselves in a situation where they're simply not going to be made available. So if we're serious about giving the Defence Force uh, you know, some additional hitting power, the capacity to actually manufacture a range of different missiles in country 
I, I think is now going to be a critical part of um, Australian self-reliance. Mm -hmm. I think we are in furious agreement on that point. So I've just completed a study uh, looking at the two big questions in this area, which is, does it make sense to do it? And can we actually do it? Do we have a plan for success? And on the first question, I think the answer is a resounding success based on the, the, some of the factors you just mentioned. So, what, what was your uh, judgment, Marcus, about do we actually have the wherewithal? Uh, because I, I think a number of people have perhaps been a little doubtful that for a country that's largely abandoned manufacturing, are, are we really going to have the capacity to ramp up quickly to do something as complex as a, as a modern uh, guided weapon? Well, I was actually quite surprised um, when I looked at this issue uh, so we do actually have a guided weapons manufacturing enterprise already in, in some ways, and that's NOLCA, mm -hmm. which is it doesn't have a exploding warhead, but it's essentially a hovering missile with a very sophisticated electronic warfare uh, package that uh, ships use to lure incoming missiles away from them. And that was at least the body itself. Um, the, the vehicle was developed in Australia. The electronic warfare payload was developed uh, largely in the US. And, and so that system is developed, was developed in Australia. It's built in Australia and it's exported around the world and has been one of Australia's big export successes. So there are um, pockets of capability in Australia to do this. Now, obviously, I think you'd want to take a sort of crawl, walk, run kind of approach. So you wouldn't jump in immediately at the high end and try and do the world's most sophisticated long range anti-missile missile, but you would work with partners and essentially, I think, initially build missiles, existing missiles under license. So instead of buying them from the US or another country, we would build an existing missile under license in Australia. And I think that's a very feasible way to start. Yes, in, in some ways, I think industry is waiting for the demand signal from government. So it's also worth reflecting on NALCA, for example, that we actually manufacture the, the rocket engine system that's necessary to propel the missile. I'd, I'd actually forgotten that, that you know, we, we have that capacity to mm -hmm. produce rocket engines as well. And, and so what's needed now is government to actually specify that they want it. Well, they've done that. Then I think the next thing is what's a what's a realistic uh, or sensible time frame and and here there is a bit of a problem because on the one hand we have i, I think a, a rapidly emerging strategic requirement but on the other hand as you say the the need for sort of a crawl walk run approach is probably going to make this longer i mean what what's your sense on how we should approach this this time frame question what's a reasonable period of time within which we should be saying that's the target for us to actually be producing uh, useful uh, weapons well i think for a relatively simple weapon where you have a supplier who's been identified who's willing to build in Australia, I think you can do it in perhaps a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So the Army has already picked a spike missile made by Raphael to go on its future armoured vehicles. It's probably going to be used by the Army's infantry. It could potentially be used on helicopters. So it's already said it's going to buy that missile and government has announced that. Raphael has said they're very happy to build it 
in Australia. The only thing that's missing is that kind of demand signal where the government says, yes, go ahead and start building it in Australia. And if you started with, uh, you know, so, some components being manufactured overseas and assembled here, you could do that quite quickly, I think, mm -hmm. in a couple of years. And obviously, you would, as time goes by, try and manufacture more and more of those components in Australia. So a more complex missile <clears throat> would probably take longer. But I do think we also need to be making some big bets. So hypersonics, for example. So the government has entered into a hypersonic partnership with the US. That's a good thing. BAE here in Australia has long experience in, you know, over 10 years of uh, developing hypersonic technologies here. So I think you know, we should be aiming, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but aiming to be producing hypersonic missiles here in Australia because, again, they'll be used very widely. They'll be on our aircraft, they'll be on our ships. We may have uh, land-based hypersonic missiles. So I think we should have a mix of kind of safe things that currently exist off the shelf and but place some big bets on some developmental kinds of projects that in time will be produced here. And so you see this as being something that will lead to a range of different missile systems being produced, not simply a system no. uh, and possibly not simply um, one major um, industrial prime and a bunch of Australian subsidiaries. I mean, how should that sort of architecture be designed across uh, across industry? Yeah, it was sort of interesting to see in the government's announcement, it talks about a missile enterprise, and I think that's a good thing. You want a sort of coordinated approach, and the media release talks about the chief of joint capabilities being the capability manager for this missile enterprise. That's a good thing, but then they talk about finding a industry partner who will produce these missiles. And I think one of the risks there that if you pick one partner, you're only going to produce their missiles. Mm. Well, there's only one company that produces a range of missiles that meets a lot of our requirements, and that's Raytheon. But there's no company that produces the full range of missiles we need. So, I'm a, I'd like to know more about what that means because I don't think there is one company that can produce all of the missiles we need. Another element in the government's announcement was that we, we're looking for systems that will be relevant to our allies, and, and primarily that means, of course, the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I can well imagine that part of the thinking behind that is that America needs to diversify its own missile production base. Uh, it's actually very reliant on a, on a small number of producers inside the United States. And if there was a need for um, a large number of missiles because of a conflict in the Indo-Pacific region, having something in Australia where the US is able to produce and stockpile weapons for its own purposes mm -hmm. makes, makes a great deal of sense and, and American strategy is kind of moving in that direction. Um, it also means, uh, Marcus, that you know we, we're not simply talking about supply to... Uh, an Australian requirement. And what what's not clear at this stage is, well, how much would we be manufacturing for ourselves and how much of this is actually going to be a business to supply to a much larger customer, the United States? Yeah, so the you know the devil is always in the detail in in these um, big ideas, and we haven't seen much of the detail. I mean, what you're indicating is there's there's a much larger demand signal than just the ADF. 
here that we could potentially be supplying the US armed forces. And I think that is a good thing, that in a sense we'd be increasing self-reliance, but we'd also be strengthening the alliance. And so those two concepts, I think, go hand in hand. Mm. But I think an important thing to remember, is getting back to that demand signal, when you look at the shopping list attached to the defence strategic update that the government published in the middle of last year, there is tens of billions of dollars of projects to acquire missiles, potentially up to $100 billion over the next two decades. That's a huge demand, demand signal. That's because every single platform now uses guided weapons. You know, a Joint Strike Fighter, for example, cannot does not use any dumb, unguided mm-hmm. weapons at all. So every single platform in the ADF is getting more and more reliant on missiles. So I did some, you know, rough calculations and that the surface, the Navy's surface fleet, if you were to equip, equip that fully with one loadout of missiles, there's probably between eight and 900 missiles just for one loadout. And that's before they fire missiles and you have to, reload. Mm. So there is a big demand signal, not just domestically, but I think also, yes, I think there's an important role Australia can play within the alliance of supplying our ally. Something that's uh, become apparent to me, uh, Marcus, is that a lot of this is actually being driven at at the government level, not simply by the defence organisation. And in particular, what government appears to be looking for here is a much faster approach than the Defence Department is typically comfortable to deal with. So we had the um, initial announcement a couple of months ago about the idea of joint production with the United States. And talking to defence officials at the time, I was very clearly given the impression that what was going to happen was maybe five years would enable us to determine the, the, the suite of weapons that we were looking for and then after that, perhaps by the 10-year mark, we'd be getting into production. Now, that clearly is not what government wants. And I, and I think this more recent announcement is really saying to the defence organisation, find ways to do it faster. Um, do, do you think that's, that's right? Because I think one of the challenges here is how can defence manage this task in such ways that gives the government the type of delivery that it's looking for within the right timeframes? Well, yes, I agree. Defence's traditional project timelines are not really what the government is after here. You know, the government was very clear in the defence strategic update that we no longer have warning time. And uh, it, I think it wants capability sooner. You look at defence's current plan, a lot of the big ticket items don't come for a decade. Meanwhile, the government is spending $575 billion in this decade. And I think it wants to see more capability sooner. And I think this is an area where government needs to drive defence hard. And I think there we have a an opportunity here. The Biden administration, I think, wants to do business differently, wants to re-energise alliances. American defence industry is notoriously reluctant to sort of set up production lines overseas, but I think now with the right sort of high-level government-to-government contacts, if we've got a window of opportunity to kind of overcome that reluctance. Yeah, it's a very interesting confluence of events, both strategic, political, technological, industrial, which I think brings us to this really interesting point. 
And uh, well done on your report, by the way, to uh, Aspie's listenership. I commend Marcus's latest study to you on missiles. And in fact, I think what, what we're actually doing here is we were slightly ahead of the curve in terms of where government was on this announcement, uh, but now they are really moving quickly to try and get something done. Yeah, so uh, thank you for the, the recommendation, Peter. The report will be out in, in two weeks. And I think it really kind of examines the business case for producing missiles in Australia. And I think on both of the questions of does it make sense to do it, it's a resounding yes. And do we have the ability to do it here? I think it's a qualified yes if we do it the right way. Well, SB listeners, it's always an exciting moment when Marcus Hellyer puts out a new report. So put that one in your diary for a fortnight from now where you'll be able to read more about missiles than you actually ever thought was possible. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you, Peter. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.